0: Good morning. My name is Mark Bates. I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, first of all, I just want to thank many of you who have been uh, praying and uh, about the death of my mom recently, and many of you sent notes and cards. And our family truly has been uh, overwhelmed uh, with the outpouring of love of this church. And so thank you for that. Um, you know, uh, funerals are... Um, just a great reminder. Or just I was there when my mom died, and um, you know, death. I mean, there's just no other way to put it. Death is just ugly, and um, it's it's ugly when a young person dies. It's ugly when a 92-year-old person dies. It's just plain ugly, because death is a vandalism of God's beautiful and glorious creation. It's not the way it was meant to be, uh, but for the Christian we have this great hope. I mean, if we look at the ugliness of death, and by the way, you're all going to die, right? Uh, we're, all, we're all headed that way. And, and uh, sooner or later, and the hope that we have, though, is even though death is ugly, uh, what Christ has done is gloriously beautiful uh, because he's going to undo all of this. When a Christian dies, at that very moment, uh, their spirit goes to be with the Lord. Right now, we're seeing things, as Paul says, through a mirror dimly. Things are confusing to us in this world. And they see the Lord face to face. Their hope is full. And so, uh, we rejoice in that. And And that makes Christian funerals a bit weird, uh, Christian funerals are strange in this way. One is you're there and you're mourning the death, the loss of this person. You're mourning what age or disease or whatever has done to the body, and it's and it's and it's sad. Uh, At the same time, you're sharing those humorous stories, and it's and they're full of hope. We actually worship at funerals, and uh, we praise God because of the hope that the person who has died, who's in Christ, is before the Lord, and the hope too. uh, And this not by hope, I don't mean wish. I mean hope, certain hope, uh, that he one day is going to raise the body with no more signs of death, decay, and disease. And uh, the whole world is going to be made new and is going to be made right. And there will be a world of justice and peace and a world where you don't have the racism of the El Paso shooting or whatever the motivation was in the Dayton shooting. And, and those things are washed away completely uh, once and for all. And so, so, so funerals of a, of a Christian are, are, are they're just strange because you're laughing, you're rejoicing, you're singing, and you're crying all at the same time. Uh, but I've been a part of some funerals that weren't like that. And not many, but the, the, been part of those funerals where there really was no hope. Uh, one stands in my mind very clearly it was um, a family that I knew in my previous church asked me to do the funeral for their dad uh, who had died, and they were kind of estranged from the dad and and so I'm getting together, and it's only about 10, 15 people at the funeral. But before the funeral, you know, I'm trying to learn about the dad, some things, nice things to say about him. And they're telling me all about his hobbies and all the fun stuff he did, the funny things that, about him. And I asked something like, I don't r- remember my exact words, but it was something like, well, tell me what kind of impact, you know, he had. And they said, like, you mean positive? And uh, there was no positive impact. I mean, they were there by duty. Uh, this man had lived the good life, but he hadn't lived the great life. He had lived a life for himself. He would pursued his hobbies, chased his dreams, done what he wanted to do to make himself happy. And the, there, was, there was no real meaningful impact that anyone could remember at this funeral, and that's, that's tragic. See, life is a gift, and like all good gifts, it's meant to be shared. Uh, it, we, we're given this life not just for us, but we're given it to, uh, to share with other people. And King David, as we read this prayer of his, by the way, we're in a study on prayer all year long, and so we're going through these various prayers. And in this prayer of David, David's making this prayer pretty much at the end of his life. It's the last chapter of Chronicles, as you can see, and he's about to die. And, and David understands that life is a gift And as a good gift, it's meant to be shared with others. And David has lived his life that way. He's lived his life for the glory of God. Now, when I say that, I don't mean he's done it perfectly. David did some horrific things. You remember that whole thing with Bathsheba, you know, adultery there? And then the murder of her husband to cover it up, and then the murder of the other soldiers to cover up the murder of her husband. And then later on, you may not remember this, David uh, uh, disobeyed God and it resulted in thousands of people being slaughtered. So, so David had a, a few things uh, that he had done wrong in his life. Let's just put it that way. He, uh, he was a mess in many ways, but, but he still was a man. Who understood that life is a gift and God had blessed him and it's a gift meant to be shared. And so here he is in 1 Chronicles 29, he's praying, and the occasion is he's praying because what he had wanted to do was to build a temple for the Lord. You'll remember that Israel, they were uh, slaves in Egypt, they escaped from Egypt, they wandered around the wilderness for 40 years, everybody's living in tents, they move into the promised land, everybody builds houses, but God's house is still a tent. And David says, Lord, how can I live in this really nice palace and you still be in a tent? Let me build a house for you. And the Lord said, no, David, you cannot build a house for me. Your hands are full of blood. That honor will go to your son Solomon. And so David said, okay, Solomon gets to build a house, but I'll run the capital campaign. And I'll raise the money. And so David begins this capital campaign to raise the money and the stones and the wood and everything else. And David's really rich at this time, and he gives a whole bunch of his money. And then the other leaders give a whole bunch of their money. And the people see this, and they give a whole bunch of their stuff. And it's overwhelming because David sees all that, they, he had, all that he's been given, and he's overwhelmed at how much he can give because he recognizes that life is a gift. And he's been given a lot, and it's all meant to be shared. He has power, he has influence, and he has money. And so this prayer is a bit of a different prayer than any of the other prayers we're looking at because at first glance, it looks like a humble brag prayer. You know what a humble brag is? oh Lord, I'm just so humbled that I'm so rich that I can give away so much money. That sounds like a humble brag. That's kind of like, oh man, my day was so hard. The other day I dropped my iPhone XS when Von Miller called because Beyonce was sitting across the table. It was just, you know, that's a humble brag. And, and so at first that seems like David is saying. Oh, I, gosh, I can't believe I'm so rich I get to give away so much. It is not a humble brag. He is a truly blessed man and he sees his opportunity And how God has blessed them in order to give as a gift. Giving is not a duty, it's a blessing. So let's look at this prayer of David as we learn about what it means to be generous and why that is so important. The first thing we see is that a generous heart is evidence of a genuine heart. A generous heart is evidence of a genuine heart. Uh, In other words, a generous heart shows that the heart you claim to have is really true. What you love is really true. Now, as we look at this, a few things we have to keep in mind is that is that the Bible teaches that we are made right with God, not through our own works, but through grace alone. So the Bible teaches, and, and I think we know this experientially, this is true. Everybody here is a sinner, right? Everybody has done wrong. And because of that sin, Justice demands that we be punished. We are separated from God. We deserve his judgment. But God, looking down on us in grace and in mercy, instead of leaving us under his judgment, comes as Jesus Christ, the Son of God, becomes a human being, takes on the penalty of sin for everyone who had put their hope in him. He endures the wrath of God on our behalf so that everyone who trusts in him may be spared, not only spared of that wrath, but embraced as children of the living God, as sons of God. And by the way, we say oftentimes sons, not sons and daughters, is because in the old days, daughters did not get an inheritance only sons got an inheritance. So whether you're male or female here, you're a son of God in this sense. We're all equal. We all get equal share. We all get the inheritance. And so we're, we're children of God. And so that all happens, not based on anything we do, not based on our works, not based on our obedience, not based on our uh, prayer life, not based on, 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 our certainly not on our giving, we are not made right with God through any of those things, but only through faith alone and Christ alone, and it's all by grace alone. So if you're new to Village 7 or you're, you haven't been at a Christian church in a long time, this is the most important thing that you need to hear today, and that is we cannot be right with God based on anything we do. It is solely by being, uh, receiving the gift from God by faith in Jesus and that alone. So we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But faith is believing that God loves us so much that he gave his son for us and through the death of Jesus and the life of Jesus, we can actually be loved by the father. So faith then believes that God has our best interest at heart, that God loves us, that cares for us and, and is always going to do ultimately what is right for us. Faith is trust in God. Well, how do you know if you have genuine faith? A lot of people profess faith. A lot of people say, I believe... Uh, but, but the question is, how do you know w- of what you say and your heart are truly aligned? How do you know it's not just all talk? Or as they might say in Texas, how do you know you're not just all hat, no cattle? You know, it's just all talk coming out of the mouth, but not real. Well, David here tells us how. But not only David, but we see this throughout the Bible. Uh, the Bible tells us how you know if faith is genuine. The Bible says we're saved by faith alone, but it also says that faith is never alone. That genuine faith results in a genuine heart, a transformed heart. So Paul says in Galatians that faith expresses itself in love. That is, if you have faith in God, that will show itself and express itself in love for one another. And again, after looking at the tragedies that we've seen in our our, our nation and around the world, we begin to see that that's what ultimately transforms the heart. Love for fellow human beings. Is faith expresses itself in love. But Jesus said this. He says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. In other words, if you truly believe in me and you truly love me, you're going to want to obey me. Or as James says, faith without works is, is dead. He says faith produces works. Now, that doesn't mean we're going to obey perfectly or love perfectly or or any of these things, uh, but it does mean that the spirit is working in your heart, that your heart at its core, desires to live a life that pleases God. Now, like David, we're going to mess up, we're going to sin, we're, but, but at your core, you're, you know, ultimately, you're going to want to live a life that's honoring to God. Well, David in this prayer brings up this same point. He gives us a test about whether or not our faith is genuine. And by the way, that's the exact word that he uses here. He says there's a test, and the test of a genuine heart is generosity. Look at verse 17. I'm going to read this out of the New International Version. We use the new, uh, the English Standard Version here on Sunday mornings. I have a love-hate relationship with the English Standard Version. It's a great translation. It's just a little clunky. And, uh, and so NIV, I think, makes this a little bit easier to read. So let me read it uh, out of the New International. Verse 17. I know, my God, that you test the heart and are pleased with integrity. Notice that he says, you test the heart. You're gonna find out if this heart is genuine and what pleases you is if you see a heart with integrity. And integrity doesn't simply mean truthful, it means consistent. What you say and what you do go together. They're they're one, they're integrated, they they, they fit. And here's what he says about a heart with integrity. And all these things I have given willingly and with honest intent. And now I've seen with joy how willingly your people who are here have given to you. David said, "Here's the test. If you want to find out if your heart is full of integrity." He says he's passed the test because he has given willingly. David does not give merely because it's a duty to give. He gives out of a willing, joyful heart, which shows uh, that uh, that 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 he has a true, genuine love for God. He's not all talk. His faith is real. His faith is genuine. So here's the test to see If the love you profess for God is genuine or just talk, do you freely and joyfully bring your offering before the Lord? Are you a generous giver, not merely out of duty, out of obligation, out of habit, but is it your joy to give to the glory of God? Now that raises an important question. Why is it that God's people would give generously and joyfully? In other words, simply giving, that's not what he's talking about. He's talking about joyful giving. You can, by willful compliance, make yourself give. That's, that's not quite it. This, it might be a start, but that's not it. How do, you, how do you give so willingly and joyfully? Well, he explains. The key to, to giving willingly and joyfully, number one, is realizing everything you have belongs to God. That's the first point. Everything you have Belongs to God. Look at verse 11. Said, Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty, for all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. Everything is God's. So what that means is your money is not your money, your house is not your house. Your car is not your car. The food in your pantry is not your food. Ultimately, everything belongs to God. It, it is, but God, as a, as, as a great and gracious king, has entrusted a portion of his wealth to each of us to serve as managers or stewards over that wealth. We are managers. We are stewards. It's been entrusted to you. You get to enjoy it. You get to enjoy it. But ultimately... It belongs to him, and is to be used for his glory. Um, have you ever been to Telluride, anybody, Telluride, Colorado, one of the most beautiful places on the planet? One of the most beautiful places in Colorado, which makes it one of the most beautiful places on the planet. And uh, if you've ever driven to Telluride, you probably went through the town of Ridgway. Ridgway is famous for two things. First is where they filmed the original True Grit with John Wayne, the good one, and um, and that's where that, that was filmed. And the other is, as you're driving down that road from Ridgeway to Telluride, you see 30 miles of split rail fence that look like this. 30 miles. How much does it cost to put up 30 miles of split rail fence? I saw that, and I didn't know what it was. And so uh, I, I looked it up. And what is there is there's, it's the, R&L double, the double R&L Ranch. RL stands for Ralph Lauren and Ricky, Lauren, Ralph, Lauren—you know the little polo guy. That's where your polo shirts have gone. Instead of building this ranch, and uh, that split rail fence surrounds seventeen thousand acres. Now that place, uh, his little Colorado, you know, cabin. Uh, On 17,000 acres, it has uh, five hand-painted teepees, which you can see here. Uh, This is the ultimate glamping experience. You ever been glamping, glamour camping? Like if you camp at the Broadmoor, that's glamour camping. Uh, And uh, so you got these tents that are are wonderfully furnished. Uh, Besides that, uh, you can see some of these other pictures. There's a ranch house, a barn, a stable complete with horses, a cookhouse, housing for staff, and cabins for guests. Now, the Lawrence, they have a townhome in Manhattan and a summer home in upstate New York and a mansion in Bedford and a villa in Jamaica and a few other places. So, so they're not able to get there a lot, maybe a week or two every summer in July, and that's it. And so they have this whole staff that runs this place year-round. Wouldn't you love to be the manager of that place? I mean, hire me, right? It's if you're the manager of Ralph Lawrence Double RL Ranch, you live there year-round. You can go glamping anytime you want. You sit in that, there eating your meals and watching TV and riding his horses. And I mean, you're entrusted. You gotta take care of it all. You gotta work the land, but it is yours to enjoy. And, and it, I mean, it's, it's all there for you. That's what God has done with us. He said, I've got this ranch, it's called the world. And, and you get to be the managers of it, and you get to enjoy it. You can ride the horses. You can look at my mountains. You can fish my streams. You can work the land. You can do all those things, but ultimately it is mine. It belongs to me. When you begin to understand that everything that we have is, uh, it belongs to God, it, it changes our mentality. Now, this is our Father's world. He's given it to us to enjoy But it's ultimately his. And when you understand that you are a steward rather than an owner, what it does is it strips away that entitlement mentality. That entitlement mentality, which means I'm entitled to my stuff. This is my stuff, and it's mine, and nobody better put their hands on it. I can do with it whatever I want. And that's that entitlement mentality. As opposed to the the gracious mentality, which says, I can't believe God allows me to enjoy all this good stuff. It changes everything. And when you realize that everything belongs to God, that leads to the next point. That means that everything you have is a gift from God. Everything you have is a gift from God. Look at verse 12. Both riches and honor come from you, and you rule over all. In your hands are power and might, and in your hand it is to make great and to give strength you all. Everything I have, everything you have is given to us by God. Now you may be saying, wait a second, <laughs> I work hard. I work my 60 hours, 70 hours a week. I, I've been thrifty. I've been wise. When other people have been playing, I was working. When other people are spending money, I've been saving. I've been wise with my money. I earned every penny I've got. And there's a measure of truth to that, right? Uh, the Bible talks about that. The Bible talks about the value of hard work. It talks about the value of saving, the value of being wise, the value of of, of planning ahead. And In fact, in the book of Proverbs, over and over again, it tells us that those who are diligent and those who save and those who are wise generally end up better off than those who are not. Generally, not always, but generally speaking. And so the Bible lifts up the value of hard work and, and the return that you get from your hard work. But while that is true... We also have to recognize that we did not begin from scratch. Now, God is the only one who can create what we say uh, in in theology is ex nihilo, out of out of nothing. All the rest of us began with stuff. God gave you your body. You might not like your body a whole lot, but it's a pretty good body, as some other people might say. God gave you your brain the ability to think and the reason. God gave you the parents that taught you how to use that brain and use that body. He gave you those teachers who were good influences on you and those friends who directed you the right way and the connections that you had for your business. God gave you all those things. You know, God gave you the, the, the privilege of being born in a time and in a country where you have these tremendous opportunities. I mean, if you've been born, if i have been born in Haiti, can you imagine how different my life would be? How different your life would be? And it's all a gift of God. People in the world, they'll say, you know, I just got lucky with this. There's, there's no luck. It is all providence. God provided it. And when we begin to realize that it's all by God's providence, uh, we begin to, again, have a different mentality about our wealth, particularly when we consider, as Christians, what Jesus has done for us. It's why you cannot believe the gospel and be arrogant at the same time because, because as Christians, what we recognize is that everything I have comes from God because it was while we were still sinners in rebellion against God that Christ died for us. You'll hear people speak about the deserving poor and the undeserving poor. We fit in the undeserving poor category. <laughs> We are those who were in rebellion against God, who had no reason to be loved by God in and of ourselves, and yet he set his love on us, so much so that Jesus Christ became poor so that we, through his poverty, might become rich. He became one of us and endured it, even though we were sinners against God. The righteous became sinful so that the sinful might become righteous. And when we begin to understand that, when we begin to understand everything we have is by grace It causes us to have gracious hearts towards others. Uh, Those who get grace deeply share grace generously. You want to know if you understand the gospel? You want to know if you understand the gospel? Are you gracious? Are you gracious? You cannot be arrogant and understand the gospel at the same time. It's a contradiction. And so the gospel leads to graciousness. And the next point that we see in David's prayer about generosity is that giving is a privilege given by God. Giving is not a duty. It is a duty, but it's not merely a duty. Giving is not merely an obligation. It is an obligation, but it's not merely an obligation. Giving is a privilege. Look at verse 14. Verse 14, he prays, but who am I and what is my people that we should be able thus to offer willingly? For all things come from you and of your own we have given. David is looking at this and you got this pile of money, all the stuff, the stones and wood and all these things, and David's looking at it going, I can't believe we did this. I can't believe I was able to give this much. I can't believe you gave this much. Lord, I can't believe we're able to do this. Because he looks at giving as a privilege, uh, not, not merely as a duty. He looks at all that he is, is given. Uh, who am I, he says, that I've been blessed so that I can so richly share I don't deserve this. I don't deserve to be able to have a part of this. What David is saying is God is doing something amazingly beautiful. Amazingly beautiful. And we get to share in that. We get to be a part of that. We get to be engaged in what he's doing. David and the nation, what they're doing at this time is they are building a temple for the Lord. Now, the temple that they are building... Will, will be one of the most glorious architectural structures the world has ever seen. It's going to be absolutely amazing. It's going to be the place where God is present there with His people right in their midst. It's going to be the place where people come to worship and to to honor Him, and it's also going to be a light to the nations around Him. Remember, one of the features of the temple was what was called the Court of the Gentiles, and so even those from other nations would come there to worship the Lord there at the Temple of Israel, and it was going to be this amazing place. And David says, "I get." to be part of building that. Now, what makes this even more amazing is David would never see the temple. He, this, he, it would not be built in his lifetime. So he's giving money to a project he will never see. He will never benefit from it. Uh, in fact, many of the people giving will die before this is completed. So why is David going to give so generously when he's going to get nothing out of it? Because David is a man after God's own heart. <laughs> He wants to see God glorified in Israel and throughout the world. And so he sees it as a privilege to see God's name being made great. And that's, that's one of the signs you're part of the people of God. You want God's name to be made great throughout the world. Now, God is still building his temple, and we're part of it. It's not, it's not this stuff. It's this stuff. God is building his temple He's building his temple on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. And Jesus is the, tr- is the cornerstone. And he's building a temple, a living, breathing temple. And it's the people of God and the people from every tribe, every nation, every ethnic group being woven together into this beautiful mosaic, this beautiful structure called the Church of Jesus Christ. And the temple that David was building was a temporary structure. It lasted about 300 years. The temple that we are part of is an eternal structure. It will last for all of eternity. David says here, you know, our lives, our lives are short. Verse 15, he says, our life is like just a shadow. It just kind of goes like that. And boy, and don't you see that? Your life is so short. People over 50 go, oh yeah, yeah. People under 50 go, what? Um, you know, my um, high school college, and high school reunion, is this weekend, and I, I thankfully uh, did not go. And, um, but I've seen pictures of people on there, and I go, are you sure we're the same age? I mean, you know, I, I mean, it's, it's just amazing. You look and go, people are older. I mean, they are, I'm not, but they, they don't look so good. Uh, and you know, I'm thinking, man, they look like my mom at 92, you know? And uh, um, it, we're all headed that way. Here's the news, news (laughs) newsflash, you're all aging. Your life is a shadow, and it's gonna be over like that. But we get to be a part of something eternal. The temple of God, the church of Jesus Christ is something that lasts forever. Uh, William James said, the great use of a life is to spend it on something that outlasts it. And that's why as God's people, we get to invest in things that multiply, that have impact, that will outlast us. And not only that, but it pays compounding interest. They say compounding interest is one of the uh, eighth wonders of the world. You know how compounding interest works? Let's say you take some money, say $10,000, and you invest it, and over the next 10 years, you get 7% return. At the end of 10 years, you know how much money you have? Some of you know, right? You have $20,000. 10 years later, how much do you have? $40,000. 10 years later, how much do you have? $80,000. It doubles every 10 years. It's an amazing thing. It's a, it's, it's a miracle. Same thing happens when you invest in lives. When you invest in the life of a person, that person touches other people's lives. It touches other people's lives. I mean, David invested in the temple. We're still reaping the dividends from that. I I think about this with the the death of my mom. Uh, You know, about 60 years ago, some people gave some money to start a new church in Birmingham, Alabama. I don't know who those people were, but they gave a few thousand dollars. And so through this new church gets started, the new pastor comes and shares the gospel with my parents and they come to faith in Christ. And so through that gift they came to faith, their lives were changed. Through their lives, other people's lives are changed. I don't know how many. I'm one, so that counts for something, right? And then and through me, other people's lives are being changed. And through those people, other people's lives are being changed. And it's just like multiplying. Your, your investment keeps paying dividends over and over and over and over until Jesus comes back. That's pretty amazing. And we get to be a part of that. So David's looking at this going, who would not want to give to this? Who wouldn't want to be a part of this? This is a privilege. One person who understands this is uh, Derek Carr, uh, who um, a couple years ago, as quarterback of the Oakland Raiders, became the highest paid player in the NFL. He's not anymore, but at that time, it was $125 million. Uh, Now, I know to say anything good about a Raider in Bronco country is a bit dangerous, but we got to give praise to where praise is due. So, so he gets this contract, $125 million. And so the obvious question is, is, a CBS reporter asked him this, what are you going to do with all that money? I mean, what do you do with $125 million? And here's what Carr said. Quote, he says, the first thing I'll do is pay my tithe like I have since I was in college. That won't change. I'll do that. By the tithe, he says, that is he's going to give 10% of his income to the Lord's work through, through his church. But then he goes on and says this. So 10%, by the way, that's what? what? Just $12.5 million, right? Uh, and uh, next he goes on to say, I'll, I'll probably get my wife something nice, you know, even though she begs me not to. Smart man. Um, uh, but then he says, the exciting thing for me, money-wise, honestly, at the, is that this money is going to help a lot of people. I'm very thankful to have it, that it's in our hands because it's going to help people, not only in this country, but a lot of countries around the world. Isn't that amazing? This guy's got $125 million and he says, what are you gonna do with the money? He goes, I'm gonna help a lot of people all around the world. This is gonna be so fun to see how this money is gonna bless so many people. He understands, he he gets it. He's been given this money by God in order to share. Now you may be thinking, <laughs> I don't have 125 million. What would you consider to be a lot of money? Would you consider five million a lot of money? I would. Three million is that a lot of money? 2.7 million. Would you consider 2. How many of you consider 2.7 million to be a lot of money? I would. Do you know the average American worker in their lifetime? Average American worker in their lifetime will make 2.7 million dollars. Some of you are way above average. $2.7 million. That's a lot of money. God's entrusting you with a lot of money. So let me ask you the same question the CBS reporter asked Derek Carr. What are you going to do with all that money? What are you going to do with all that money? And David looks at this and says, I can't believe God has given me this money so that I might share it and be a blessing to others. Life is a gift, and it's meant to be shared. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the gifts you've given us, and they are amazing. They are astounding, what you've given to us as your people. And, Lord, we see this in in the way, ultimately, you've given us your son, who reminds us that though he was rich, yet for our sakes, he made himself poor so that we, through his poverty, might become rich. And now, Lord, out of the riches that you've given us, We take such delight in being able to share those with others, to use those to see your name be made great. Lord, we're thankful for the work that our money can do through things like Mercy Skate, even as we've heard today, and how, how people's lives are being changed as people are hearing the good news about Jesus Christ. We thank you that we can give and know that... Uh, Lives are being changed. We've heard this summer about literally hundreds of, over 100 kids from our church who've been serving on mission projects in our city and in El Paso and in St. Louis. We thank you that we can be a part of those who've gone to Costa Rica this summer to announce the good news. We're thankful, Lord, that our money can be used to to disciple our children through Vacation Bible School this summer and all the many kids programs. But, but even more importantly, the week to week, day to day things that happen as as the gospel is proclaimed in our Sunday school classes and communities and and uh, uh, discipleship groups and Bible studies, uh, the way it is being lived out in people as they're being equipped in their faith and being deployed into ministry. Lord, we're thankful that the investment we're making in your kingdom will continue to pay a rich return. we waste a lot of money, but we know any money we give to you is never wasted. So, Lord, thank you for that great privilege, and we pray. Continue to give us generous hearts that we might share in the work that you are doing. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.